Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Sorry, Dolly, we're not working nine to five anymore. Thanks to the rise of digital technology over the past few decades, the workday isn't what it used to be. Glued to our phones and laptops, we no longer clock out when we leave the office. And now, many predict that the COVID-19 pandemic will cut the last ties we had to the 20th century employment structures. One huge change we have seen in this pandemic is the shift for millions to work from home. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey telling his employees they can work remotely forever from anywhere. Abandoned desks, empty boardrooms, and no more water cooler conversations. Throughout the world, office workers sit at their kitchen tables or in their living rooms, connecting with one another on video conferencing platforms. One of the bright spots here has been Zoom video. The stock is up more than 70% since its April debut. Yet for many, working from home is not turning out to be a dream. This is especially true for women. The fields are empty, the playgrounds deserted, and all across the United States, school buildings sit empty. Without childcare or household help, Women are often left to juggle homeschooling and the dishes while also remaining quote-unquote professional. Then there are those for whom remote work isn't a possibility. Two months of pandemic layoffs totaling 36.5 million layoffs or furloughs. And of course, tens and millions of restaurant, retail, and service workers aren't working at all as lockdown measures continue and businesses close. U.S. unemployment rate reached 14.7% in April. That is the highest it's been since the Great Depression. Although the pandemic is far from over, many economies are taking steps to reopen. So it's not too soon to ask how the pandemic will change the workplace. Teresa Gillarducci joins me to answer these and other questions. How are you, Teresa? Um, I'm good, thank you. Even though there's a pandemic, I'm fine. Thank you. Teresa is the Irene and Bernard L. Schwartz Professor of Economics and Policy Analysis at the New School. The end of days are here. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, really. We said, what next now? Frogs, plague. Well, yeah, plague, right? <laughs> well, the hornets are here. She joins us from Santa Cruz, California. So, Teresa, for the past couple of months, we've seen workplaces have either had to shut down or reduce their capabilities, and we've seen millions become unemployed. And political leaders are really under growing pressure to reopen their economies, even where COVID-19 cases are still increasing. Is the trade-off between saving lives and saving jobs really so black and white? You know, it's not at all. I think economists have presented trade-offs in lots of public policy decisions before, like in the environmental protection or auto safety. And so there is this trick we do, which is to say, do we require, you know, all cars to be built like Sherman tanks in order to save a life? And there's a calculus that you can make. And economists now in a public policy, normal public policy arena, value lives or between like 3 million or 10 million, depending upon the context. But that's not the same kind of calculus that's being made in a pandemic where one fourth grader goes into a classroom and in two weeks can infect 4,000 people randomly. And those 4,000 people can infect another 16,000 in just a day. So in this pandemic, 
we are not making that trade-off between shutting down the economy and saving the life of a 95-year-old. We are stopping random killing throughout the human population. What is really important here is that the federal government and the governments all over the world have realized that there's not a trade-off between the economy and saving lives, that they're connected. So what the governments have done in a way you never saw 10 years ago with the financial recession is moved quickly to try to compensate people for the shutdown in the economy. And that's the right calculus. So the economists, for really the first time in history, are very much aligned about what has to be done. And that is to take a back seat to the virologist, and we compensate the losers for the loss in jobs. But as we look to move forward, at some point, we're going to have to slowly open back up. What do you think the indicators should be to assess the prospects of recovering economic growth and employment? The first indicator I look at is how much income is being replaced by the government. So last week, we saw the jobs report from the United States. My favorite table is B6 of the unemployment report. So everybody out there um, who's looking at the the jobs Friday, take a look at B6. That tells you um, what sectors have lost jobs. The hardest hit sector were leisure and hospitality. So I look to see whether or not the 7 million people who lost jobs in that sector, down from 14 million in just a month, whether or not their incomes are being replaced by the government. If it's being replaced by the government, then I said, hey, the slowdown won't be that bad. Yes, people have lost incomes from the private sector, but if they get incomes back from the public sector, we can actually maintain spending throughout the economy. So I look at income losses, not job losses. And then when I work with other economists or the economists are mapping out with the public health officials what services we should open up first, we rank them by their essentiality in the economy and also their jobs multiplier by the economy. So we already have a grid. We keep utilities going. We keep finance going. You actually need to pay for things online. We've kept wholesale trade and trucking going. And if you look at that table, I look at B6 by job losses by sector, you see that finance was barely touched. Um, Utilities were barely touched. We may want to bring back K through 12, primary education. I mean, the teachers are still working in very poor conditions. They, they can't get to the, um, all the students on Zoom. Some students do better than others. And third graders and second graders don't do really well on online learning. But if we re- get those kids back in the classroom, then we can release the labor you know, of their parents. So we want to look at high-value sectors and roll those back. The yoga studio is just going to have to wait. It's not a high value added sector and there are close substitutes. So that's what we economists look at. What has to be done because there is no home substitute and what is a value a high value added sector? Well, you just talked about how the government is crucial here in continuing either to provide assistance to the public but offering different services. But states in the United States have been warning for weeks now of crushing budget deficits that are to come as a result 
of massive unemployment and the loss of tax revenue. How will this affect state and local governments' plans to restart their economies? With really a unanimous voice, and again, I can't tell you how little controversy there is among professional economists. The economists say to governments, borrow as much as you can to replace incomes, send out checks, put gold in the street. I'm I'm being metaphoric. Buy the debt of states and local governments. And the government, federal government has not done too well here. And you've gotten to the heart of a political issue is that the federal government is sending checks, stimulus checks, and the House of Representatives just passed another bill to send another $1,500 to most people um, in a very progressive way, not to rich people. They need to do that. But state and local governments also need to run their schools and run their, their services. We have a weird system here where a lot of vital services are funded by local and state governments. The federal government could help out states and localities with one stroke of a pen, and that is to take over all the Medicaid expenditures. A portion of Medicaid expenditures are are funded by the federal government directly, but the biggest burden is on states and local governments. But I think you were asking me something a little bit different. How much can the federal government borrow to replace incomes um, of jobs lost while we fight this pandemic? The answer is quite a lot. We have seen no lack of appetite for pension funds, for rich people, um, for mutual funds to buy high quality government debt. And the world is actually flooding the American debt market. They're buying every time the treasury goes out to auction to sell the treasury bonds, um, we find ready buyers to buy that safe assets. It's not so true for other countries, especially poor and lesser developed countries. But for most of the rich world, um, people will buy government debt, even Italian debt. So we haven't seen the limits to borrowing yet. And if we borrow wisely, and when we come back, we have a strong economy, we can pay back that debt very easily. Teresa, I want to turn now to larger trends in labor. And while many of the strictest lockdown measures have eased, and Most children will, I mean, hopefully be back in school, hopefully in the fall. The job as we know it, especially white-collar jobs, may never really be the same. What has this massive work-from-home experiment taught us about the way we work? I think that people like you and me, um, I'm a researcher and a professor, um, you are in media, that we've adjusted pretty well. This is where new data in the last month with lots of economists um, scraping what's called the occupational um, title index by the federal government. Who knew, most of us didn't, that the federal government collects detailed descriptions of each job in the economy, you know, hundreds of jobs. And one aspect of those jobs is whether or not you need to do the job close to other people or can you do your job at home. And so before this pandemic, about 33 jobs could be done at home, even though they weren't. So that's a lot, right? It's 33%, but it's not the majority of jobs. So when we look at, take a deep dive at each job in the economy, 
I don't think this experiment is going to go beyond what we had before, that it, there still will be only about a third of the jobs that can be done at, at, at home. And that really is done, you work remotely, but you're not alone. You're with your colleagues on Zoom. And that only works for colleagues that have had a pre-established relationship. Going forward, adding new people to a work group, you know, without actually meeting would be more and more difficult. So for some of us, you know, we may be spending time on Thursday and Friday, but I do not see the end of work in a group setting anytime soon. There are a lot of jobs where people are wanting to work from home on a part-time basis, but I don't see a major shift. The coronavirus has really revealed a lot of fault lines, um, particularly in U.S. society. And here, we're really much more aware of the importance of policies like paid sick leave and access to health care. We are seeing a wave of labor action across the country in the midst of this pandemic. Yesterday, workers for the grocery delivery app Instacart held a one-day strike demanding hazard pay and access to protective equipment. Today, employees from the grocer Whole Foods did a sick out. And demands on the ground are changing. More workers are calling these policies rights, not perks. Today, I stand with the nurses to call upon Donald Trump, upon our local and our hospital leadership to stop looking for PPE that doesn't exist and start producing it. We are past the point of last resort. Do you foresee momentum in this direction and a return to stronger worker bargaining powers? Yeah. The issue about how the economy affects worker bargaining power and in what sectors is something that I've been looking at for 30 years. So here is um, a big event, and we have seen a regard for low-income workers um, that we have never seen before, that all of a sudden the person who delivers your food at your door on Instacart or um, in in Grubhub um, have a face. And as you stare at them, as you take um, your food, you realize that they're exposing themselves to a virus that could go home and kill their disabled child, you know, or an old, old grandmother. So in that way, you need the public to have empathy for workers in order for workers to have bargaining power. So that's a plus. The second thing we, we saw is a huge demand for, for workers in certain sectors. And, and I just named some of those, um, but they're also in the healthcare sector. People who are on the front lines dealing with um, urgent healthcare needs. And they have been outspoken about their the danger that they have on the job. And then secondarily, pay. And that is the way usually workers assert themselves. If you look at history in the coal mines, it wasn't pay that got coal miners to be so um, so militant. It was actually the danger on their job. So in some ways, the environment is right for workers to rise up and to organize into unions because their very dignity, their health and safety of themselves and their family is on the line if their employers don't offer PPE, which is personal protective equipment, don't offer a safe space, you know, with social distancing at work, and also um, don't provide paid um, sick leave. So, I, you know, you're right on, you're spot on by saying that those issues are riling up um, workers. 
But just having the demand for dignity and the demand for a safe workplace and the demand for a living wage is not enough for workers to have bargaining power. We have to have institutions and laws that accommodate union organization or accommodate um, safety regulation. And I am shocked to have found out that OSHA, which is Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has not issued one new regulation or one new violation order about um, workplaces. So we don't have a federal government that's accommodating workers' newfound demand for better working conditions. At the beginning of this pandemic, I don't know if people know this, but the Trump administration said that there would be no union elections in April. They modified that and said, well, you can have a union election if the employer allows you to. Um, I think there's a a public support for workers. There is a demand for workers themselves to know that collective action is the most important thing they can do. But without a system, a regular system to allow workers to have collective bargaining, the jury is out, right? I'll wait to see um, whether or not this will be a, a newfound union wave. Well, what's preventing people from coming together to do the collective bargaining? So employers stand in the way. Amazon fired eight people for trying to organize a union last month. Yesterday, more than a dozen workers in Amazon's Staten Island warehouse walked out in protest. The conditions in the warehouse has been uh, hugely different. Um, It's been scary. And if employers break the law by firing workers for just talking to their members about joining a union, that has become a way that American employers have really crushed unions. It's not the workers themselves that don't want a union, and it really isn't the public, because we have the strongest support for unions than we have since Gallup has been taking polls for 50 years. But if employers can use the law and also can break the law without any retribution, you're not going to be able to have employers and and unions um, and, you know, and workers um, bargain collectively. What's really odd also about this pandemic and about how the economy is shaping out is that we're going to emerge from this pandemic with a lot more inequality. The big survivors, the winners of this economy are going to be the big firms. U.S. tech giant Amazon is set to hire 100,000 people as online orders increase. Customers have taken to the Internet to do their shopping due to the coronavirus outbreak. Remember, it comes as many retailers are closing physical stores around the world. So Amazon is ramping up its e-commerce capacity. Google, Amazon have done very well, thank you very much, in this pandemic. They have a really supplanted small business. They've um, knocked out their competitors and they will emerge uh, dominators of the market. That means they'll have huge pricing power and a a huge capacity to have profits. And the question is political about whether or not they'll have to share those profits with workers. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, 
you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. So going beyond politics, can big companies like Amazon or Google be forced to protect workers? They are spending some of their of their profits on personal protective equipment um, because the workers have have demonstrated that they're not going to come to work if it's not safe. Now, there's a real question about whether or not if you don't come to work because it's not safe and you're fired, whether or not you can collect unemployment um, benefits. But a lot of workers in, in these kind of local actions have been willing to take that that chance. And in response, Amazon in the second quarter used some of its profits um, to spend money on, on personal protective equipment. That is one way that they've had to release their profits. But in terms of how much money goes to to labor versus capital. You know, it's what economists look at when we look at the whole GDP, which is like the pie, and how much has gone to labor. Just spending more on the infrastructure of work does not really um, help workers get out of debt and um, provide a, a living wage for their families. To answer your question, it's going to take unionization um, or union-led public policy that raises the minimum wage or raises the living wage, because you don't get any of those kinds of legislations without union organizing. Um, we economists at the Federal Reserve and academia are looking to see if there's any institutions that will force employers to release their profits to pay direct wages. You know, they may have to pay more taxes, they may have to pay, you know, for a better working environment. But the real key is whether or not they'll have to pay higher wages. I want to bring in gender here. And you talked about a better working environment. And one thing that we thought with the onslaught of technology is that we would have more of a flexible work schedule that would, you know, in theory, help decrease gender inequality. But what we've seen over the past couple of months is that that's not really happening. So what measures do we need to put in place to make remote work sustainable in the long run, particularly for women? That is such an insightful, good question. Every woman knows, and now um, it's easy to illustrate, is that when work comes home and your kids and your partner come home, the old gender divisions of labor assert themselves. For instance, women and men were asked, now that they're, they're school-aged children, there are 35 million Americans who have school-aged children now at home, um, now that they have to, to work remotely, how do the parents divide up the work in helping their children learn? 50% of men said that, well, we split the work evenly, 3% of women said that they split the work evenly. So when work comes home and the family comes home, the stay-at-home orders have relied on basically free female labor. When people are sick and there can't, there can't be any home health aids, which is 90% female, 
It's the daughter or the daughter-in-law that will take on those burdens. Now, I'm not blaming men and and pointing a big finger at at men, but I am pointing the finger at patriarchy, um, which actually divides up work between um, women and men before capitalism, and it's enhanced by capitalism. So there's a hidden cost to these stay-at-home orders, and the hidden cost is borne by women in their uh, unpaid labor. I think that the balance of work-life has actually made it worse for women and you can see that in the evidence. Working mothers look forward to Monday morning when they can go to work and they get paid for all the labor that they do. I'm really concerned about the strain on, on women because of this economic reordering that the pandemic has caused. More people at home causes them to have more work, more care work, more, more maintenance work. If you look at the sectors that have lost the most jobs, those are female-dominated sectors. So women are much more likely to have been um, unemployed in the last month than men have. And that wasn't that actually wasn't true in the 2008 recession. So what policies can we put in place to right this gender imbalance? If men could have paid parental leave at work, that would go a long way for men wanting to take um, care of their children. You know, a birth event it doesn't necessarily have to be a parenting event. If men and women can both take paid leave, then you could see a negotiation um, that would be more equitable. We also need paid sick leave, not only for public health so that sick people don't come to work, but unless we have paid sick leave and family leave, we're not going to see men being able to get the permission to stay home and do that cared work. In order for care work to be equal, it's got to be paid. The other thing that we can do is extend the school day and extend the school year. Not only do our children in America need more formal education that's much more innovative, and I don't mean children staying another couple of hours in a desk looking at a teacher talk. There's lots of ways of learning and lots of innovations in learning, but they do need to be in a place that's safe so their parents can go to work. If there were more education, K through 12 was extended throughout the year and throughout the day, we would release more paid um, women's labor into the labor force. And that will achieve a lot more gender balance because men and women will have access to income and they'll have more equal bargaining power. Now I'm hoping post-COVID, we start paying for care work or to pay for the work that is heretofore done on an unpaid basis by women. Teresa, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I am really happy with my with my profession with my economists my economists you know my club are speaking with one voice which is that we have to save lives because that really helps the economy and that we need a much bigger government to help stabilize the economy and i look forward to you know a society that comes out of that to say wow when we work together through our, our public officials, we can face things like um, pandemics. It's only collective action that will stop that one fourth grader, you know, to spread a deadly disease to 4,000 um, humans in two weeks. So I 
am very hopeful that once we get out of that, that we'll have a, a stronger social insurance programs and we'll have a stronger faith in our um, politicians. Teresa, thank you. Thank you. That was Teresa Ghirlarducci. She's a professor of economics at the New School and the author of Rescuing Retirement, a plan to guarantee retirement security for all Americans. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunnock.